You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine-Banks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. This is Victor Shi. Um, I'll be an incoming freshman next year at UCLA and I'm also the youngest Joe Biden delegate here in Illinois. Jill, um, can you give us a brief introduction about who you are? Sure. I'm also a very proud Biden delegate and loving not only the convention, but all the news of today. It's been fantastic. Um, But I am also equally thrilled to be having Rick Wilson as our guest today. I am a former Watergate prosecutor and former general counsel of the Army and uh, many other things in my career. Now an MSNBC legal analyst and the co-host with Victor of this podcast. Looking forward to our conversation. Vic, Victor, do you have some questions? For sure. So um, today, just to give our audience a brief introduction about what we'll be talking about, we'll be discussing Rick's thoughts on the DNC convention, what he expects the RNC convention will look like next week, um, some of the projects that the Lincoln Project has been working on in terms of the ads um, to persuade traditional Republicans, independents, and frankly, anyone concerned about our constitution and our democracy. Um, we're so glad to be joined by Rick. Um, for those of you who don't know Rick, he is the co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He is a seasoned Republican political strategist, frequent political commentator, New York Times bestselling author, a media consultant, and innovative ad maker, as we all can see with his Lincoln Project ads. So first of all, thank you so much, Rick, for being here. Well, thank you, Victor, and thank you, Jill. I am delighted to be, to be with you guys today on uh, what we will now forever be calling Bannon Day. <laughs> <laughs> Bannon and Vance. Can't forget that. Yes. Tax returns, tax returns, tax. Yes, Follow indeed. the money. Follow the money. For it's always, sure. It's always, it's always the underbelly of these people when they're, when they're corrupt in that way. It really is. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so I was kind of just reading up on your bio. And for me, one of the most striking parts about your bio is that you worked as a field director for George H.W. Bush's campaign in 1988. Um, And that was, you know, uh, now you are one of Donald Trump's worst nightmares. So I guess first, can you tell us what was that like to you kind of to make that transition from a traditional Bush Republican to now um, anti-Trump? And was there a moment that you thought, you know, I just can't tolerate him any longer? Well, I'll answer the second question first. And it was the moment I saw him coming down the escalator. And I thought, no, no, I'm done. I'm done. This is it. Because I recognized at that point, I had already had a lot of, of, of qualms about where the party was heading in terms of this populism and nationalism that was rising since the 2010 election with the Tea Party wave. And as, as that concern grew, that the party was increasingly less about fiscal discipline or personal responsibility or individual liberty or free markets or the constitution or the rule of law or any of a whole portfolio of issues that I believed in um, as a, as a libertarian-ish conservative, um, I increasingly thought we were going to have a problem eventually with some sort of Trump-like figure. And we ended up with the Trump figure himself. So when he came down the escalator, my decision was made. Um, I knew enough about him. I had worked for Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor. Uh, I had done his re-election campaign in 97, went back to New York to work for him in 98, 99, inside City Hall as a senior advisor, and then flipped out to the Senate campaign against Hillary Clinton in 99 and 2000. And so I had a lot of experience in New York 
And Rudy at the time, he's the biggest suck up in the world to, to the guy now, but he hated Trump. <laughs> he thought Trump was a clown. He insulted Trump all the time. And like, to my face, I've seen it like, give the guy some parking passes, he'll shut the F up. You know, it was just this like dismissiveness about, about Donald Trump that has so inverted itself now with the way Rudy behaves towards the guy, which is like, you know, Rudy's, Donald Trump's free lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, is not the guy that I worked for and certainly not the guy that the country knew on 9-11, um, who displayed all that, that individual courage on that, at that moment. But now he is this sort of clownish figure, but everyone around Trump becomes that eventually. I just want to say, when you talk about working for George H.W. Bush, that was a time when Republicans were Republicans. It was a time when we still had some bipartisanship, some dialogue, and there was a rational choice about being a Republican. They stood for something, which is, I think, Rick, what you're saying now is you knew and saw Donald Trump for who and what he was, and that was not a traditional Republican. That's, that's right, Joe. I mean, and I think back about this, and I worked in the first Bush administration, very young guy. You know, I, I was one of those junior deputy dogs, as they say. And I worked for this guy, um, you may have heard of him, named Dick Cheney, who was the Secretary of Defense. Um, <laughs> and, and I got to say, there was an ethical standard. There was, a, there was a personal integrity standard. There were behavioral standards where if you did any of the things that Donald Trump does every day, you'd be fired. It wouldn't, be a, it wouldn't be five minutes, it would be that minute. You wouldn't last five minutes with George H.W. Bush if you were uh, you know, proposing things that like putting kids in cages, proposing things that, that break the law. I promise you, no one ever sat in the Oval Office with George Herbert Walker Bush um, and said, hey, we wanna do something so extreme that you have to do a, a, an executive order that we know will probably be thrown out of court because it's so outrageous, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> I mean, there's, there was, and I say this a lot in my first book, and I, I talk about this a lot separately. There's always been a sort of political homeostasis in our country. And no one who's too liberal stays in power for too long, or too conservative stays in power for too long. And there are all these forces that balance out. We get a sort of a homeostatic like, tension. And that means things change slowly, too slowly for many people, but they they work within boundaries they work within institutions right and then as jill knows even richard nixon said to himself i'm not going to burn the country down to try right. to save my job yeah. i'm not going to do it and and he he i mean we look back at nixon now and it's like the criming of richard nixon was like amateur stuff compared to these guys yes. but yes. he still at some fundamental level still had a sense of shame and, and he still actually believed in the rule of law. Right. He abided by the Supreme Court decision. The fact that we're worried that Donald Trump is going to now appeal the district court decision that says he has to turn over his tax returns is proof that he does not accept the rule of law. Right. The courts have spoken. Yeah. The Supreme Court sent it back. The court said there is no burden here. And it's not even a burden on him. It's his accountants who are being subpoenaed. So, Correct. I mean, it's, it's absurd. We have lost all sense of decency in America. And, and, and as one of the attorneys, or one of the judges, excuse me, today said, you know, this case in particular, the Vance case of the tax records in particular, 
is the president seeking a backdoor route to absolute immunity. And if you have absolute immunity and absolute authority in your head, you're not a president. You're not serving the republic. You're not, you're not a part of a democracy or a democratic republic. You are a king. You're an authoritarian. You're a strongman. It's, a, it's, not, it's not what any conservative should want. I mean, conservatives, hypothetically, believed in the constraint of executive power under the Constitution because that was the system that the Constitution prescribed, an executive that was bounded by both the court on one axis and the Congress on the other. And this tripartite division of these powers was something the founders took seriously and supposedly my fellow Republicans who, who for years beat their chest, I'm the most conservative constitutionalist, you know, now they look at Trump's excesses, they look at his behavior, they look at his criminality, they look at the corruption, and they shrug. Yeah. And, and wow. you know, this week we saw the release of the Rubio report in the Senate Intelligence Committee, and the Rubio report clearly outlined that they knew of criminal activity by members of the Trump campaign a year and a half ago and have said nothing. And they voted to exonerate Trump, even though they knew this pattern of behavior existed prior to this, and they did nothing. So they've walked away, they've abrogated their, their, their constitutional you know, stripes, in my view, and, and they, they, they've treated Donald Trump as a king. Yeah, I mean- I've, I've said before on the show that the most disturbing thing to me was when they voted at the Senate after the trial, mm -hmm. the aborted trial, it wasn't a complete trial because they couldn't present all the evidence, but when they voted not guilty, it's not that they voted not impeachable, but when right. Roberts, Justice Roberts called the role, it had to be guilty or not guilty. And to say not guilty when the evidence was clear was very disturbing to me in terms of democracy, very mm -hmm. disturbing. Mm -hmm. But Victor, very, let's, very, let's- Very much so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for just like kind of in the same uh, realm of topic, um, I think, you know, whenever we kind of talk about these conservatives who allow Trump to do these things, we refer to them as the enablers. Um, why do you think these re traditional Republicans like Ted Cruz, um, you know, who didn't support him in the primaries, um, why do you think they allowed Trump to do these type of unlawful acts? Well, look, I think the reason that they've chosen to do this is, is very simple. And I've described it in my, in my, in my first book and in articles. Mm -hmm. It's FOMT, fear of mean tweets. <laughs> they have no belief system, Victor. They don't believe in anything except holding on to power and mm -hmm. avoiding the anger of Donald Trump. Yeah. They know that if he tweets something bad about them, it is going to cause this social media meltdown. They're going to get death threats. Their, their lives are going to turn upside down. Their fundraising is going to get cut off. They're going to be screwed 10 different ways. And he knows that too. He is a political extortionist extraordinaire. And so he uses that fear of, the, of his social media footprint to control their behavior. And look, some of them are opportunistic. And it's like, I say this a lot, even in the current house today, which is 40 seats down from where it was, only about a third of them really believe in Trumpism. Only about a third of them are real nationalist, populist, Trumpist, whatevers. Another third are scared shitless. They're scared to death. They don't want to go get crosswise on Donald Trump. And another third are hustlers and opportunists and profiteers and people who, who, 
crave the, the, the proximity to the president for their own political purposes. I'll tell you a story. Matt Gates doesn't believe in Donald Trump. He doesn't care about Donald Trump at all. Matt Gates wants to be on Fox News every night. Matt Gates wants to raise millions of dollars from, from these people on his email list where he can say, I'm fighting for the president. Help me with your $27. There are a lot of those people in Washington. But what you've really seen in all those three categories is a moral collapse. They believe in nothing. They have no principles. They have no philosophy except avoid the president's wrath. Okay. So wait, I want to plug your books, though. So um, you are a New York Times bestseller. I hate mentioning that I what? have. A, yeah. Okay. So let's have the names of your books so that our audience can know them and we can post them on our website. Thank you. My first book is Everything Trump Touches Dies, um, which was released in 2018. Um, and my second book that is out now, just out this week in paperback, an expanded Ooh. paperback edition, is Running Against the Devil, uh, which is called A Plot to Save America from Trump and Democrats from Themselves. Because it is a book of tough love. It is a book telling Democrats how to not screw up uh, the election to come based on 30 years of experience in making Democrats screw up during elections. <laughs> well, let's move on to um, one of the biggest moments in politics this week, which is um, the presidential um, convention. So we have the DNC convention happening this week. We have the RNC convention happening next week. Um, Jill and I have done some extensive um, political coverage on the DNC convention this week as we are both delegates. Um, and we've really just been blown away by the format, the messaging and the speakers that the DNC has really used during this um, convention. Um, I'm curious, though, as a, as a traditional Republican who has witnessed um, many RNC and DNC conventions, what have been your thoughts on um, the virtual DNC convention thus far? Um, and is there anything that you thought was particularly effective or ineffective? Well, Victor, this is being executed as well as you can possibly execute anything in the COVID era. Mm. And, you know, conventions take a long time to plan. There, there are people working on the convention a year and a half in advance. And for a year and a half, they were planning something beautiful in Milwaukee and they were gonna do all the things, you know, a thousand media people were gonna descend. They were gonna have a big old balloon drop and banners and confetti and parties and all the things that we think of as a modern convention. Look, and the convention as it is currently constituted is a, a, about 130, 140 years old, okay? The big, the big gathering from all over the country. Well, we can't do that now. So they've executed, I think, really pretty well. Um, I think last night you saw two performances that are that were star turns, and and those were the things. Last night was sort of housekeeping mm -hmm. and punching some of the you know buttons you need to punch with your base audience. But Barack Obama last night, and as much as I don't have to agree with Obama on political philosophy. The guy is a hell of a performer, and he brought the pain last night, which is why Trump has been having a hissy fit about it. Um, and we hear a lot from inside the campaign and inside the White House. Trump would love for today to have been like, I'm going to school Obama. And it just, he, the guy just took him down so hard um, that the road rash must be painful because he just, he just knocked and dragged that guy. He didn't knock and drag Trump so hard last night that it was, it was truly remarkable in my mind. Yeah. It um, made me cry. Well, um, as it, Victor it, knows, I, we were supposed to record yeah. our impressions of the 
convention after, as we have done each other night. And I started crying when I was talking to him. I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I was so moved by mm -hmm. everything, by Obama, by Hillary, and by Kamala. I mean. Well, I, I have to say, the introductory video for Kamala Harris was artful and beautiful as an ad maker, yeah. as a guy who makes television. That was letter perfect, visually visually delicious, really well done. Mm -hmm. And she went out there and passed the main test of any vice presidential candidate. That is, can you look at this person and say, they're ready to step into the office on day one. Yeah. They're ready to take the job on day one. And I think she passed that test last night with a combination of competence and strength and warmth that was well balanced. And again, you know, I say this to my Republican friends all the time. I don't have to agree with them on every political philosophy issue. I have to look at them and say, are they less of a danger to the country than Donald Trump, who is a lawless, reckless, mentally unstable man? Easy answer right now. Easy answer all day long. Yeah. And I thought we saw that beautifully play out with just every single speaker that we've seen really laid out the case for why we should not vote for Donald Trump and just the things that he's done to our country that have just torn away from the fabric. Um, I think that was really striking for me as just a young person watching. It was like every single message was just, was just you know, you may not agree with Joe Biden on, just, on these policy issues, but it's just, you know, Donald Trump has just done so much damage to our country and it's clear um, over the past four years. Right. Um, so one of my favorite moments during this DNC convention was the roll call. Um, usually we see um, delegates all decked out in gear um, and they just you know, oh, yeah. cast their votes. Um, but then this time we saw um, Democrats just, we saw like this kind of pan throughout the country um, with Democrats um, casting their votes in their respective cities and states. Um, and then I was on Twitter and Kevin Cruz um, was like, I'm looking forward to the GOP roll call. And he laid out some um, possible scenarios for that. And it was really fun. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but with the RNC convention coming next week, what do you expect with that? Like, do you think um, they can revive like a broken or non-existent campaign strategy or kind of get a boost out of the polls? Like, what can we expect with that? Well, uh, look, the roll call in the traditional convention format um, is always kind of messy and it always kind of looks the same. I mean, maybe they have slightly different hats or jackets, but you don't see the character of the state displayed. And I think you actually saw more of that in the Democratic roll call this time. I think you saw a little more color, a little more, you know, a lot of it was out outdoors. And you felt a little bit like there was a sense of, of, you know, uh, connection to the states. Um, but in, in most cases, the roll call, you know, it ends with the big, the, the, the big balloon drop and the celebration and all those things, which is fine. You're not gonna have that tonight. It's just not gonna be the same feel. But again, I also think that's okay. I think because we, we're in a country right now where 175,000 people have died of COVID, where our economy is on the brink of collapse where the country faces these problems of a, such enormity that it's not a lighthearted moment. It's not a rah-rah moment. It's a moment of determination and a moment where you recognize you have to move forward and a moment to say, roll up your sleeves, guys, 75 days to go, get serious, get to work. Which I think they did a good job last night, by the way, of reminding people, you gotta go vote. Yeah. You gotta yeah. go vote, you gotta get out there and vote. And you know, Hillary Clinton last night you know, she took her, she, she, ate, she ate her broccoli last night on this thing. She ate her spinach 
and basically admitted, I took my foot off the gas and people woulda, coulda, shoulda, they needed to go vote. And I hope Biden, I I don't think he will, but I I hope Biden takes that lesson from her that, you know, Donald Trump won with 77,000 votes in three states and fewer than 150,000 votes in Florida. I say that a lot, so I rattle through it. Um, And you cannot take your foot off the gas with this guy even for one damn minute. Yeah, we just have to win by huge margins. And we, like, even if we win the popular vote, it, the scary thing is the Electoral College. And I think it's just up to us to really target those key swing states to win big in November. Victor, Victor the only thing is the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing. Mm-hmm. You know what? If Joe Biden wins by, and there's a scenario, by the way, where Joe Biden could win by 20 million elect, uh, popular vote, and, and Donald Trump still wins the White House in the Electoral College. It is the only game in town. It is the only yeah. ball game. You know what? A popular vote victory in three dollars and sixty-five cents gets you a medium latte. That's it. It is not. It does. I mean, I, I, and whether that's right or wrong doesn't matter. It's the only ball game in town. So you've got to play by the electoral college rules. And you're right. The swing states. I mean, look, Lincoln Project. We we are right now involved in only a limited number of places. We're not running national ad campaigns because I don't care. I know how California is gonna vote. I know how Mississippi is gonna vote. I'm not working in those states. I'm working in the places like Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Iowa, North Carolina, Arizona, Florida. Um, Those are states that are in play and in in motion right now. And I may have to expand my target map a little bit further as Trump slips, where right now he's starting to have trouble in Georgia. He's starting to have trouble in Texas. Now, are those states going to go go Democrat? Probably not. But they're already scary enough that Trump's having to spend money there to stay in the game. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's an exciting it's an exciting calculus game. You've got to figure out a lot of of varying you know critical paths to get to uh, the two seventy. Yeah. Before we get into those calculus games. Um, and hand it back off to Jill to talk about how we can persuade as many voters as possible um, with your Lincoln Project. Um, I just want to tap into the kind of the premise behind Lincoln Project, a group which you co-founded. Um, can you just give us a brief introduction about how uh, the Lincoln Project came about and kind of the thought process behind its formation? Well, there are a group of us who are all former uh, Republican uh, consultants who all worked at a fairly significant level in American politics. And we, you know, ranging from presidential campaigns to U.S. Senate races to governors to congressional races, I mean, to mayors of big cities, uh, down to dog catcher. Uh, and all of us over the last couple of years have been in a group, in a movement loosely called Never Trump. Um, but as we went forward, we realized there were going to be two kinds of people in this fight. People who bitched about Donald Trump in Washington, D.C., and said, can I have my next glass of Chardonnay? And guys who were willing to go out, and women who were willing to go out and get in the trenches and knock heads and get bloody and, 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 and have the gigantic media machine of the Trump world turned on us intimately and painfully. Mm-hmm. And so last fall, in late September, early October, started having some conversations with uh, Reed Galen and John Weaver and Steve Schmidt uh, we added in some other folks after that, Mike Madrid, uh, Jennifer Horn, Ron Steslow, a number of others. And we began to form a, a concept of operations that would hold Trump accountable, any other Republican or conservative group, 
would hold the, the enablers of Trumpism accountable, which is what really rattled their cage in the end, by the way, um, and would proceed in a way that reflected on country over party, first and foremost. We realized that it was easy um, for a lot of the people we knew and were friends with in Washington to mm -hmm. just say, I'm going to go along to get along. I'm going to shut up. And believe me, I'd be a lot richer today if I just shut up. <laughs> we made, you know, this being a, being a consultant is not a bad business model. It's not a bad place to be, but um, we didn't. We couldn't. None of us mm. could 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 allow this to go forward without speaking and acting. And so we chose to swear ourselves to this cause, and we kicked off in late December, mm -hmm. when it looked like Bernie Sanders would be the nominee. There were a lot of reasons to believe Bernie was going to win the nomination at that point. And it was tough for us to do that because it's like, how do you, how do you, you know, say we're conservatives are going to back Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And Joe Biden's election has made our job uh, as nominee has made our job a lot easier, a lot more fun. He is very much from the center left tradition in this country. He's not a, a regardless of how many times Breitbart and Fox scream it, Joe Biden is not going to seize the means of production and declare the workers paradise. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we, we formed the group, we started, uh, you know, doing a little initial fundraising in the spring mm -hmm. and it's since then taken off. The president attacks us frequently. He attacks our, our work and our members frequently. He called me crazed, which I wear as a badge of honor, <laughs> not even wrong. Uh, and you know, we've gone forward from there. We've advertised now in, uh, seven or eight of the U S Senate races. We've advertised in the swing States. We're continuing that. We've got a large war chest for the fall going forward, and we're about to uh, we're about to continue. We're about to cause some ruckus next week at the Republican National Convention. Oh, I can't wait to hear about that. <laughs> so. You know, Donald Trump foolishly announced the themes he was going to be having in the convention next week, and so you know, all he did was just give me extra time to make some ads. <laughs> and and. I love some of the people who are speaking. The Missouri gun-toting couple, for example. What message is that? I'm sure the My Pillow guy will be there, oh. and Diamond and Silk, <laughs> and the rest. Like Trump world, you know. The, uh, Steve Jobs from Apple had a famous saying, and I'm not sure if it was his originally, but he was noted for using it: that A's hire B's, and B's hire C's, and C's hire D's. Well. A's hire B's and B's hire C's and C's hire D's and Donald Trump hires the most random ass collection of scales, ne'er-do-wells, liars, conmen, scumbags, weirdos, racist freaks that you could possibly find. And these people are all going to be front and center next week on display. It's going to be magnificent. He all was asked to, who will not be traveling. He was asked today on MSNBC about the fact that so many of the people he's hired have been indicted. This was, I guess, in relationship to the fact that Bannon was arrested today uh, for fraud. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people who are conmen hire other conmen. It's just, that's how it is. So, Sometimes you need a criminal lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh. yeah. So, yeah, I, I, let's talk more about the Lincoln Project yeah. because... Sure you clearly um, have the best ads out there. Thank they you. are energizing, certainly Victor and me and all of the people that we associate with. Yeah. Um, and they seem to be really targeted at people like us. Um, is there some way that you're gonna sort of 
get to trying to persuade the thinking sure. Republicans well, and not just energize me? Sure, Jill, that's a great question. So there are three broad categories of ads that we do. And by the way, one of the things that, that is different about us, we tell people what we are doing. We tell you right out, we're gonna go screw with the president today. This ad is to screw with the president. Most campaigns try to do this like mystical voodoo thing like, yes, we're, no. We tell you what we're doing. <laughs> we have three categories of ads. Wreck Donald Trump shit. We're really good at it. And that's what gets the most attention. Fine. The second tier of ads are what we call litigation ads. We are litigating the case of Donald Trump's failed leadership with the voters in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, Florida, and other states. We are talking about the failures of his leadership on COVID, the economy, and a host of other areas because we have a hard edge to our messaging and our communication that the Democratic Party, to be frank and God love them, do not possess. Their worst negative ad on their worst day is me waking up and like slightly grumpy. <laughs> we can differently and more powerfully. Oh, yeah. Everyone acknowledges it. It's fine. We're not bragging about it. It's just where we come from in the world. You know, we, we come out of a brawler tradition of American politics. And so we're bringing that to this case. The other, the other night, Michelle Obama gave a great speech. She said, you know, repeated her when we go, when, we, when they go low, we go high. Right. You know, Lincoln Project tweeted out when they, you know, we go low so you don't have to. <laughs> and look, you need you need fighters. Oh my God. people who are going to go out and cut throats. Yeah, you know, we often analogize the Lincoln Project to a pirate ship, and and we have a little fun with that. But it's not untrue. We have a sort of you know we follow the wind speed and direction of the political moment. We go after the president. We litigate these cases with people, and that litigation ads block soft Republicans from going back to Trump. Okay. They're not moving people a lot in terms of, of trying to get Trump voters. I don't really care about hard Trump voters. I care about those people in the middle who've walked away from the GOP in 2016 and 17 and 18 and 19 and, and preventing them from going back to him mm-hmm. and then nudging them over with the third series of ads and the third category of ads we haven't really started yet. Those ads will be coming in the last part of the campaign. Those are persuasion ads. Those are ads that say, you can't vote for this guy. You need to be with Biden. We actually are launching the first persuasion ad in Ohio. We've done a lot of litigation in Ohio. Our first persuasion, I'll give you guys a little preview, um, mm. is an ad called Goodyear that will go up tomorrow on Ohio television cool. because the president decided he would tweet uh, yes. asking people to boycott Goodyear, which happens to employ 62,000 people, many thousands of whom in this great state of Ohio or have good union jobs. And so we're able to use that to start persuading and say, look, he's not on your side. He talks a good game, he's not on your side. You can't make that choice. You gotta go the other way. Um, and those persuasion ads will be ramping up very targeted ways uh, across the country in the swing states in the next several weeks because we are not dropping nuclear bombs on this campaign. We are targeted. We are smart bonds. We are headed in, you know, we're going right down the chimney on these things. We're not trying to level 50 square blocks. We're trying to get to a significantly meaningful number of very targeted voters and change their vote or push their vote uh, toward Biden and away from Trump. Mm-hmm. So that does raise the question, I mean, because you got you are great at this. Your ads are wonderful. What, how do you define what makes 
an ad really effective that reaches a voter that might persuade a voter? Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that those social media ads I talked about, they're the tip of the iceberg. Underneath the water, Lincoln Project has built a very significant voter analysis operation, a data analysis operation. So when we put an ad up, we're asking people, we're polling, we're asking, you know, does this work for you? Are, are you changing your vote? And I'll do, I'll do scientific testing on it. So I'll go in and say, um, I'll run an ad in, let, I'm going to hypothesize here. Let's say I run an ad in Mecklenburg County outside of Charlotte, but I don't run an ad in Yancey County outside of Charlotte. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll have a control group and I'll pull both areas and whatever. And so I'll know, if my ad worked, I'll see a difference in Mecklenburg County for that ad. I'll see a difference in the polling after that ad's had its effect. Yeah. So this is not just seat of the pants, fly by night. It's very targeted. It's very data centric. It's very data driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Madrid, who is our political director, is a he has forgotten more about electoral math than I will ever know in my life. And he's brilliant about it. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we'll say, okay, we're going to lay a cable buy into this area. And he'll say, all right, I've looked at the analysis. These people in this zip code are already so strongly for Biden, we don't need to advertise there. But these people in this other two zip codes, they're softer, so let's get some more, more tonnage on that, on that area. So it, we know how to make great ads that move Republican, independent, and, middle, and, and centrist voters. Um, and we deploy them very smartly. We don't we don't go as slowly as other campaigns do. We're very fast. So like he tweeted about Goodyear yesterday afternoon and the ad was done this morning. So, you know, our guys have, our guys have the speed of heat every day because we know that speed matters in these social media battles. And that's the other thing we're doing, by the way, is amplifying through targeted digital and social media every day because people are basically home looking at their phones and computers. Well, you've done an amazing job of it, that is for sure. Mm -hmm. And I hope that the Democrats are learning from you, although, as you said, because you're doing the job, they don't have to. So they can talk about policy and they can remain high, which I don't think is a bad thing. I personally am one of those people who believes that politics should be an honorable profession and that we shouldn't be tarring each other with terrible terrible things. Um, I, I do like that. Um, should expect, but, though, that Donald Trump is going to do some horrible, horrible things in the next uh, 75 days. Yeah. He's going to darken the sky with negative ads, and it's going to be very, very ugly coming forward. So we all well, need to mentally prepare ourselves. For that. I hope that you're as effective in persuading voters as you have been at getting under his skin, because he clearly so, is yeah. thin-skinned and has been, uh, his tweets this morning means that Obama also got under his skin. Obama rattled his business last night. It was a thing of beauty. It really was. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. It's it's fabulous. Um, I I think we've learned a great deal from you. And um, is there anything else that you, you know, want to tell our listeners or... Tell- well, uh, I, will, I will throw two things at you. Um, Lincoln Project is now streaming. Uh, we've got a, a streaming service mm-hmm. during the evenings the, during the conventions. Uh, we did it. We started out the first night just sort of for fun as an experiment mm-hmm. between the bunch of us. And then somebody leaked the, um, the, the live link on, on, on Tuesday night. 
and all of a sudden it's like, hey, 15,000 people watch this. And then <sighs> last night we took it to a public beta and it's still very rough around the edges, okay? It's still like a little chaotic. Um, and last night we had 170,000 viewers, which is basically oh like a network. Wow. So wow. we're gonna have some fun with that during the conventions and maybe a little beyond. Um, and and if people are interested in the Lincoln Project, they go to lincolnproject.us. They can learn more about us. They can see the ads. Mm -hmm. They can donate. They can buy Lincoln Project gear, which people really are crazy about. Um, and you know, we're we're um, we're we're part of a movement in this country that's growing. We're really proud to be you know part of the spearhead uh, in in terms of the messaging and the and the communications against yeah. this president, and um, having a good time. And I really appreciate you guys having me on today. Great, and, I, so and people much. can yeah. also join. You have town hall meetings. We do. We've got um, yes. Friday yeah. uh, on Zoom, which will also be streamed on the new LPTV. So we've got a got a got a hell of a thing going on here. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, we're so appreciative. Thank you so much, Rick. Well, thank you very much, Victor and Jill. I look forward to seeing you again someday on the set. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, that would be nice. It would yeah. be nice. And <laughs> yeah. um, so while we're, we're plugging your book, I have to plug mine too, The yes, Watergate Girl, out in February, just before coronavirus hit. Um, One last question. Is there anything you can give to, Rick, uh, to Victor and me to help us have conversations that will help persuade the persuadable? I'm not talking about the Trump base because they're hopeless. I'm talking about independents and sane Republicans like you. What, you know, what are the things we can talk about? One of the things that I've found is it's very helpful is you, you give them an exit ramp. You don't condemn them and say, right. you're stupid for voting for Trump. They may have been stupid, but they believe me, they know that already. They have felt that already. And, and if you peel them past, okay, you got some judges, and now what? What have you lost because of that? What powers have you ceded to the executive because of that? What part of conservative philosophy is this kind of behavior? And you ask them those questions and defending him for them is easy. It's like, oh, the liberal media hates him, therefore I hate him. But when you ask them about the party and their beliefs and how does he represent them, if at all, it becomes a much more difficult equation for them to work through. And again, you give them an off ramp, you know, you give them an exit ramp. Who do you want to see in the future someday? Right. What do you want to think? What kind of party do you want it to look like in the future? Do you want us to be able to win African Americans or Hispanics ever? Do you want us to be able to expand past, you know, the non-college educated white guy, which is becoming like the center of all or the Republican demographic? Do you want to be a competitive national party? Do you want to be able to win races in places like California or New York ever again? Mm -hmm. Do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to? You know, do you want to hold on to a position? that sounds more like Ronald Reagan or more like Donald Trump? Do you, want, do you want your kids to be more like George Herbert Walker Bush or more like Donald Trump? So those are kind of the kind of things I ask people when I'm having conversations with them. And it's not always easy. People do not always find it easy to have those, those discussions. And, and especially with me, because they think I'm gonna tear their head off and wave it around the room like, a, like an ornament. <laughs> when I ask them a softer question, they get a little like, wait, what? <laughs> So, oh. but yeah, that's, Thank you. that's the way you kind of approach mm -hmm. that. For sure. Thank you very much. Uh, well, we you, are Jill, grateful. Thank you, Victor, Victor, thank you. best of luck. Jill, best of thank luck. You. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you guys again. Thank, thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
We hope you listening also enjoy this episode. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and send us suggestions, ideas for future topics, and speakers you'd like to see via Jill, myself, or our website. Lastly, Intergenerational Politics is now on Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and rate our channel to support us. Thanks for listening, and see you on our next episode.